good to see you here tonight, and it is a real privilege to stand in this pulpit. I've known your pastor for many, many years. I don't know how I keep aging and he stays the same, but I'll forgive him for that. Someday I'm getting a new body. Amen? Jesus is coming soon. It is good to be with you tonight, and I'm very excited about our topic, and we're going to look at it from a little bit of a different direction tonight, if you will. And our subject is one that is exciting to consider, yet at the same time, it is inciting to many. In other words, it stirs up ire at the mention of the word rapture with some. Some cry foul. Some say heresy. Some say new doctrine. Some say not in the Scripture. And in response to this growing number who deny the presence of the rapture in Scripture, we need to address this particular issue tonight for two different reasons. If you will, we're going to mesh eschatology with apologetics. And we're going to come to an understanding of why we can be confident that in a moment and twinkling of an eye, Jesus is going to come get us and we're going to be with him forever. Now the two reasons are these. Proper hermeneutics or interpretation of Scripture, and accurate eschatology. And I would hazard a guess, since you're here sitting in 412 Church, and your pastor is dedicated to the proclamation and study of prophecy, that you here tonight believe in the rapture of the church. I would say maybe even the majority of you are pre-tribulation rapturists. You believe that before the 70th week of Daniel can be fulfilled, there's a great catching away of the church of Jesus Christ. Now, our title and topic tonight is The Rapture, Biblical Doctrine or Human Invention. So let's pray and ask God's blessing on our time together tonight. Father, again, we're so grateful for the hope that we have within us. Thank you for the hope of heaven. Thank you, Lord, for the transformation we experience in this life. Thank you for the promise that you made to your disciples that you had gone to prepare a place for them and us, and you were coming again to receive us unto yourself that where you are, we may be also. And to that we pray and say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Before we dig in, just so I don't have to answer the question afterwards, for you World News Briefing uh, viewers, why did we lose the last 20 minutes of last week's program? The answer is, I don't know. (laughs) But it was kind of interesting that we were talking about coronal mass ejections, or as we call them, solar flares, and the fact that there is going to be seemingly an interruption of all things electronic in the tribulation period, and EMPs being fired or suggested to be fired by the North Koreans and things of that nature. So what I believe happened last Thursday night was the prince of the power of the air was messing with our stuff. But God is greater than he. Amen? And we'll be back at it next Thursday night. So here we go. Here's the hermeneutical question. Does the Bible teach the rapture? The short answer is yes. You're not getting the short answer tonight. You're getting the long version. Now, since the Bible clearly teaches the rapture, let's quote all the verses together where the word rapture is used. Ready, go. Well, if there's no such thing as the word rapture in our Bibles, and please heed what I said, in our Bibles... How can we arrive at an accurate understanding and know that we have doctrine related to eschatology when we mention the rapture? Now, we have to make this argument in order to make a point. We don't find the word rapture in our English Bibles, 
But are there other major doctrines of Scripture that we don't find the word that we associate with that doctrine found in Scripture either? Well, I hope your mind races directly to the Trinity as mine does. And the fact is, it is an essential doctrine that when it's denied, it compromises the principles of saving faith. There is one God manifest in three personages. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, one of the most appropriate set of verses to make our point is that which records Jesus' baptism. In Mark 1, 9 through 11, we're told it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately, coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the what? Spirit descending upon him like a dove, meaning as a dove would descend, so too the Spirit descended on Jesus. Then a voice came from heaven and said, You are my beloved Son. Who's speaking here? The Father is speaking, in whom I am well pleased. And in this scene, we find the three manifestations of the triune Godhead, the one eternal God, simultaneously present in one scene. Did you see the word Trinity in there? No, but is the principle clearly declared that God is triune in his nature. Now, this basically decimates what's called oneness Pentecostalism, which is growing in popularity today. It's the belief that the Father, Son, and Spirit are individual manifestations of the single God, and you would never find them collectively in one place together. Well, Mark says that's a lie, and that's not true. There is one God, amen, and he is manifest in three distinct personages, God the Father, Son, and Spirit, as we said. Now, in Judaism, a father and his firstborn son, or the heir, were considered equals in society and culture, which is why the leading Jews accused Jesus of claiming to be equal with God, as he claimed and said that he is the Son of God. Now, Jesus tells us in John 14:26 that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will teach us all things. Now, don't you have to know all things in order to teach all things? Who knows all things? Only God. Therefore, the Holy Spirit is omniscient, a characteristic that is exclusive to God himself. The Father is clearly God. The Son being an heir is his equal, and he is God. And the Spirit knows all, which again is a divine attribute that only a member of the Godhead would possess. Now, the point is this. It is possible for a doctrine or precept to be present and valid in Scripture, yet not use the moniker or title that we have associated with it, as is the case with the Trinity. It's also true of the rapture. Now, the word may not be used in our Bible, but the concept is clearly taught. Just as the triune nature of God is clearly taught in Scripture, we have labeled it the uh, Trinity. Now, one of the most common objections made about the rapture of the church is that it's kind of a Johnny-come-lately or late arriver in the doctrinal scene, which obviously is not true. It's in the Bible. Now, some say it's not part of ancient eschatology, and some propose that the rapture concept was first developed and taught or introduced by the 19th century theologian and scholar John Nelson Darby. How many have heard that name? associated especially with the rapture. Now, Darby may have been influential and instrumental in reintroducing the rapture of the church into mainstream Christian thinking, 
But he was not some delusional wag as many purport him to be and some imply him to be. I want to tell you a couple of things about John Nelson Darby. Darby is one of the top five most prolific authors in Christian history. He personally founded over 1,500 churches. He translated the Bible into three languages, English, French, and German. And he added two more languages when he translated the New Testament, five in total. Darby is one of the most important Christian leaders in the history of the church, certainly since the Reformation. So he's not some kook. He's not some fringe wacko that came up with this rapture idea because he heard what some girl said in a dream of some report. But our time tonight is not about what John Darby said concerning the rapture. Our time is going to be concerned with what the Bible says. And the entirety of the Word of God is truth. And we are going to, going to come to decisive conclusions concerning the rapture here tonight. So, here's our question. How can we arrive at the conclusion that an implied event or belief is indeed sound doctrine, though the term we are familiar with is not found in Scripture? We're going to use three elements to arrive at our conclusions that are essential for developing any major doctrine of Scripture and any precept as being valid. Two of them we'll use are general one is case-specific concerning the rapture itself. The three things we'll look at tonight are Old, precedent, or Old Testament precedent or typology. We're going to look at New Testament clarity. In other words, is it found in the Old Testament, taught in the New? And for our subject tonight, we're also going to discover prophetic necessity. Is it necessary that the rapture be a component of eschatology or last day's teaching? Now, our last criteria means, does the absence of the doctrine of the rapture leave a hole in the prophetic narrative or timeline? Now, if we can answer these three questions, you still here? If we can answer these three questions, I believe that we can arrive at a safe and sound conclusion that the rapture is, one, neither new, and two, nor is it a human invention. It's as sound of a doctrine as any other in the scripture. Now, one more thing before we dig in as it relates to the view that the doctrine of the rapture is a Johnny-come-lately in the uh, recent rise of popularity in evangelical thinking. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, Daniel was told, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until when? The time of the end or in the last of the last days. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. To summarize and paraphrase what Daniel was told we can understand that those living close to the end are going to have more prophetic clarity than those living far from it. And therefore, it is biblical that we would have a better perspective and handle on eschatology than generations that preceded us, especially for the fact that there were nearly two millennia of people that didn't see Jews living in Jerusalem. We are in the last days. The nation of Israel has been reborn, and God said once they are back in the land in Amos that they will never be uprooted again. Jeremiah 31 says, If you see that the sun doesn't come up and the moon abandoned its place in the sky and the seas no longer obey their boundaries that I set at creation, then you will know that I have cast off the nation of Israel. Listen this evening. The nation of Israel that inhabits the geographic property that God gave them in Genesis is the Israel of the Bible. God said he was going to bring them back into the land and they are there. Now, the Bible says, those are the most important words 
for us to hear and heed. Not popular opinion, says. Not those who try and force their belief onto the text to fit their eschatological scheme or time frame. But the Bible says that some elements of the last day scenario are only going to be knowable to those who are watching them happen. After all, did not Jesus say, when you see these things begin to come to pass, do what? Look up, for your redemption is what? Nigh. And we are seeing all these things come to pass. But, listen, the pre-tribulation rapture has a much deeper biblical base than saying recent awareness is an invalid argument against it. So let's be Bereans. You ready tonight? And dig in and put this doctrine to the test and see if it holds up. Our first criteria. Do we find Old Testament precedents or typologies to validate the rapture as a cover-to-cover doctrine found in the Scripture? In 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52, Paul said, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, or everybody's not going to die. But we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. That's estimated at a millionth of a nanosecond. At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised. How? Incorruptible. And we shall be changed. Now, mystery is the Greek word mysterion. And it means not obvious to the understanding. We're going to talk more about this in our second criteria. But the point it makes for us is that there are things in Scripture, in the Old Testament in particular, that are not obvious to the understanding that we have to dig and mine for to come to a complete understanding. And we, living in the last days, have a better grip on it than previous generations. Examples like the statue in Daniel 2 and the beasts of Daniel 7 and 8. Their meaning wasn't obvious to all, even though the nations were named, uh, the uh, Babylonians and the Medo-Persians and the Greeks were named, but the fourth beast was one of curiosity that Daniel longed to know more about. And now we can look back in history and see quite clearly what the Lord was talking about. Four successive empires that would basically mistreat the Jews, so to speak, the Babylonians even carrying them off captive. So can the mystery of the rapture of the church be established by a foreshadowing of it in the Old Testament? That's our question. First, we need to understand exactly what a rapture implies. As a doctrine, the rapture implies two things. One, the instantaneous translation from this world into the next. Secondly, the separation of God's people from his direct wrath on his enemies. So let's look for the instant translation from this life to the next life in the Old Testament and see if we can set a precedent. In Genesis 5, 21 to 24, we're told of Enoch, who lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. And after he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not. What happened to him? God took him. God translated him. And the word took is key. The Hebrew word means to fetch or to carry away. Now here's something interesting. The word can also mean to marry. Now I think that's interesting for this reason. Are we being told that Enoch was fetched away and he'll be present at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Well, if he was supernaturally translated into the next life, there's good reason to believe that God was pleased with how he lived. Amen? Amen. 
2 Kings 2.11 tells us that when it happened as they continued on and talked, that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind where? Into heaven. So based on our Old Testament findings, we can say that the first of our, our first half of our criteria has been met. We find in the Old Testament a precedent which would validate the instantaneous translation from this life to the next life of living flesh and blood beings who pleased and served God. Now, there's another reality we need to incorporate that's going to help us combat one of the arguments against Old Testament types of the New Testament rapture. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10, Paul says, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, to wait for his son from where? Heaven, that means he's coming back, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from what? The wrath to come. There is a day of wrath that is coming. Amen? Do we not have a promise to be delivered from it right here in front of us? Yes, we do. God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through Christ our Lord. Now, we're going to deal with other New Testament scriptures concerning our deliverance from God's direct wrath, but this will introduce a concept for us. So let me ask you again, is there an Old Testament precedent for the instantaneous translation of human beings from this life into the next? Yes, there is. Yet some say the church is going to go through the tribulation. The church is going to go through tribulation as saints of old went through tribulation. Well, as Old Testament types of deliverance from wrath, we can note these things. Noah was delivered from God's wrath when the ark lifted him above the waters of judgment. Amen? Lot was delivered from God's wrath on Sodom and Gomorrah when he was removed from the place, separated, fetched away from the place where God's wrath was about to be poured out. The Israelites were delivered from God's wrath. Now listen close. When the last seven plagues pounded the Egyptians into submission. If you remember, between plagues three and four, God told Pharaoh, I will make a difference between my people and your people, and the last seven plagues will not come near them, even though they stayed within the boundaries of Egypt. Now, two things to note. Some say, well, the Israelites were still on the planet, and that means the typology is telling us that the church goes through the tribulation and God will supernaturally protect them. Well, let me say this. Israel is Israel, and the church is the church. They are two separate entities altogether. And listen, we also have to be careful about appropriating things written about Israel for the church that seems to be popular today. But this we can also know. Anything that God said to Israel concerning his nature and character applies to the church today, and you can take it to the bank. Because our Lord doesn't change. He is faithful, is he not? He is the Holy One of Israel. He is our Savior, all things that he said to the nation of Israel that we can embrace as our own. So Israel is Israel, and the church is the church. The church has not replaced Israel, nor is God finished with Israel. Now, pay close attention. Neither Noah, are you listening? Neither Noah nor Lot were Jews. And their location was changed to deliver them from the direct 
wrath of God. Noah was lifted above the waters. Lot was removed from Sodom. Exodus 8.22 records what I mentioned a moment ago. And in that day, God speaking, I will set apart the land of Goshen in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there in order that you may know, God addressing Pharaoh, that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. I will make a difference between my people and your people tomorrow. This sign shall be. So two Gentiles separated physically from the wrath of God. Israel remained in Egypt. Egypt is a type of what? The world. And in the time of the ten plagues, they encountered the first three plagues, but they were separated from them even though they dwelt in the same place during the time of those plagues. Now, I know it's late, it's Sunday night, but ten minus three is seven. How long is the tribulation? Seven years. Is there a typology there? Well, of course there is. And this is what we are being told, that even during the tribulation period, the Jews will be on the planet because they rejected Christ, not Messianic Jews, of course, but Jews as a whole, Israel as a whole, has rejected Christ. They're the only people group that God deals with on a national basis, and they have rejected Christ, and they are going to have their eyes open during the tribulation period, and they're going to look upon the one whom they pierced and mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. But during that time... They're going to be supernaturally protected. All believing Jews will be protected by the hand of God. Zechariah chapters 12 to 14 tell us two-thirds of the Jews are going to die during the tribulation. And those who believe on the Mashiach bin David, he is going to supernaturally protect. But again, Noah, a Gentile, was removed from the flood when the door of the ark was shut by who? God shut the door. So there we have a supernatural agent incorporated into the separating of God's people from his coming wrath. Lot was removed from the wrath of God by angels meeting him and leading him out of Sodom. Once again, we have supernatural agents involved in the change of location of God's people, delivering them from God's wrath. In Egypt, we have the divine protection of Jews during the time of God's wrath, just like it's going to be during the tribulation. Notice also that when the Lord spoke to Pharaoh, the separation of God's people of wrath uh, from his wrath was assigned to the world. So do we have as a precedent in the Old Testament the instantaneous translation of living human beings from this life to the next? Yes, we do. Uh, Say that with a little more confidence out there, would you? Yes. Yes. Do we have in the Old Testament the deliverance of non-Jews from the direct wrath of God by lifting them up and changing their location. Yes, we do. What is the rapture? The catching away of the church by force of God's people at the sound of a trumpet blast by a supernatural agent to meet the Lord in the air before he pours out his wrath on the world and he is going to supernaturally protect Israel during that time. Are there things in the Old Testament that are precedents and typologies of the New Testament mystery of the rapture of the church? You're waning on me here. Yes. So, what about New Testament clarity? Some say, well, the rapture is not mentioned as we made our case at the beginning of our time together. How then is the mystery of the old made clear in the new? 
And the first thing we need to deal with is our initial statement that the word rapture is not in the Bible. Let me ask you this. Is the word gracias in the Bible? Yes, it is. Just not your Bible. Is the word bonjour in the Bible? Yes, it is. Just not your Bible. Those words are translated as thanks or hello or greetings in their associated languages. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 to 17, Paul says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until when? The coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep or dead. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be what? Caught up together with him to, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. I'm not moving on until somebody says amen. amen. We shall always be with the Lord. Now the word translated as caught up is harpazo. I'm sure you know that because your pastor is a great teacher. It means to pluck, pull, or catch up by force. I didn't say catch up. Catch up. Now, if your Bible was in Latin, it would read, uh, instead of harpazo, it would say rapturos, which is the same meaning, to catch away by force. So yes, the word rapture is in the Bible, just not yours. If you happen to read Latin, for some strange reason, it would be in your Bible. Now, Paul says, living people will be caught up with dead saints and meet the Lord in the air and forever be with him. The last statement carries with it some fantastic implications, including the instantaneous translation of living human beings from this life to the next via a supernatural agent to live eternally requires a body that's capable of doing so. I just turned 60 this year. I can't hardly believe it. And indeed, I am feeling the aches and pains of getting older. I was just talking with a guy, one of our associate pastors at the church today. I was saying, you know, I, I really, because we were both kind of hobbling around. I stepped on something and bruised my heel. So I've been hobbling around for a couple of weeks waiting for that to heal. He's got a pinched nerve in his back. And so he's standing at the door trying to shake hands like this. And, you know, saying, man, I, I sure do miss those younger bodies. I wish we had the wisdom of a 60-year-old placed in a body of a 25-year-old, but I think we're going to get that later. Amen? Yeah. Now, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 55, Behold, I tell you a mystery, as we said earlier, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. That's the speed of it. At the last trumpet, the dead will be raised incorruptible and in all the things we read earlier. Remember, sleep is an idiom for death. And Paul says we're not all going to die, but we shall all be changed. Changed into what? Changed into incorruptible, immortal beings. How fast? In the twinkling of an eye. Is that not an instantaneous? That's what Enoch experienced. That's what Elijah experienced. Instantaneous translation into an eternal being. And we are going to meet the Lord where? In the air. How long are we going to be with him? forever will death continue then to be a threat will we age anymore no will we lose all our hair no if you're looking for me in heaven i'll be the guy with a big fro up there so so 
Since some say that we have forced something into the text, I would have to ask the question of those who look at the rapture allegorically in our verses in 1 Corinthians and those Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, what would be the figurative meaning of verses if there's no rapture? It can't be a picture of salvation because we don't get new bodies the moment we're saved. It has to mean something else in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 55. It can't speak of the soul. The soul is already eternal. All souls are going to live forever. The soul is already immortal. So what can it mean? There's only one candidate, and Philippians 3.20 gives it to us, 20 and 21, where we're reminded our citizenship is where? In heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform what? Our lowly bodies, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Paul said, we shall not all die, which has to pertain to the human body, not the human soul. So these lowly and limited bodies are going to be transformed, which can also be translated as transfigured, into their predestined form, and that being the image of Jesus Christ, the glorious image of Christ. The word is icon for image, the exact representation of. Now Romans eight twenty-two to 25 also says, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs until when? Until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the fruit, first fruits of the Spirit, even we groan within ourselves. How many are ready for heaven? Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Eagerly waiting for the adoption, which is the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Now, redemption means a releasing affected by paying a ransom. Redemption means releasing affected by paying a ransom. We are waiting for our bodies to be redeemed, having been confined to the expectancy of death. And while Romans 8 does not give us the details of the transition or translation of these bodies into the glorious ones like Christ, it does say, however, that such a thing is awaiting us. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us of the speed of the transition in the twinkling of an eye. Philippians further explains immortal incorruptibility as the destination of the transition, which is described in Philippians as glorious Christ-like bodies. So, is there clarity in the New Testament on that which was a mystery in the Old concerning the translation of the body into a, in an eternally existent capable model? Yes, there is. So, we have Old Testament types and precedents. We have New Testament clarity. But what about prophetic necessity? Is the rapture of the church necessary to the narrative of the whole eschatological picture? Will there be holes left in the prophetic narrative if there is no rapture of the church? I bet you can guess what the answer is. Yes, there will. So let's dig for it by starting with a question. Must all the Bible's prophecies come to pass for it to be a reliable and trustworthy source? Yes, they must. Can unconditionally and eternal promises be forfeited or applied to another group when the Bible still be a source of immutable or unchanging truth? 
No, you cannot take promises made to Israel and apply them to someone else. So, what you're saying tonight is, what was once true must always be true. Is that what you're saying? I thought that's what it was. <laughs> Revelation 6, 15 and 17 says, And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of who? The Lamb, for the great day of his what has come? His wrath has come. And then the rhetorical question, who is able to stand? Now, we're told the kings of the earth, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man. Now, in John's day, the word every used to mean every. In our day, the word every means every. So rich or poor, slave or free, all walks of life, Every person on the earth tries to hide themselves from the wrath of the Lamb. The rhetorical statement that follows has the implied answer, as no one is able to stand in the face of the wrath of God. Now, do you see the word except there? Except for the church. Is that in there? No, I don't see it in there either. Now, do we know elsewhere in Scripture, when the Lamb of God becomes a lion against his own bride and kills her along with evildoers without discrimination. Do we see that somewhere? Does Jesus treat the church that way? No. He even tells husbands to treat our wives like he treats his bride, to treat them without spot or wrinkle and wash them with the water of the word. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 through 11, which we mentioned earlier, reminds us that God did not appoint us to wrath, but conversely, to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we live or die, that's what wake or sleep means, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort and edify one another, just as you also are doing. I don't find it very comforting to think about going through the tribulation as the church. I don't take much comfort in that. I take more comfort in us escaping the whole thing. And I will remind you, the great escape precedes the great tribulation. He is coming for us. You know, I think it's funny. One of the things that is always leveled against pre-tribulational rapturists is that we are escapists. Guilty. Guilty, guilty, guilty. I want out of here. I want to miss the whole thing. So, if there is no rapture, there's a discrepancy then between 1 Thessalonians 5 and Revelation chapter 6. So let's add this in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 8. Now, brethren, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. Catch that phrase, gathering together. We ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by the letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one do what? Deceive you by any means. For that day will not come unless the, what are the next two words? Falling away comes in what order? First. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he's God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things, and now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Boy, is it all around us today. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way 
and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Obviously, the second coming of Jesus is going to deal with the lawless one. Now, it doesn't make it on the radar often, but I believe the rapture is found here in the phrase gathering together. Now, the word simply means to assemble in one place. Are we not all going to be with the Lord in one place? We're going to meet the Lord in the air with the dead in Christ preceding us, and it will forever be with the Lord. That is the end result of the rapture, the church all gathered in one place. Now, some like to see the phrase falling away, the Greek word apostasia, to be the falling or the catching away, because it can be translated as departure. Now, here's the problem with that. Apostasia is never used in the context in Scripture of physical departure. It is always used in the context of defecting from biblical truth. It's never related to leaving from one place and going to another. And after all, if the falling away or apostasia were referring to the rapture of the church and the gathering together is pointing to the rapture of the church, well, the text would read like this. The rapture of the church can't happen until the rapture of the church happens first. Does that make any sense? No, the Bible's not confusing, is it? And therefore, only one of those two are candidates, and it is the gathering together, the assembling in one place, that points to the rapture of the church. The defection from truth uh, speaks of that which is under full swing right now, a departure from God's word. Paul says, don't let the letters or words of others shake you up concerning our gathering together with him. And we shouldn't let the words of the naysayers trouble us today either. Even though people call us names, kooks, and everything else, I don't care what they call us, just as long as my name is called when the roll is called up yonder. That's all I'm worried about. But Peter adds this in 3 to 7 of chapter 3 of his second epistle. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come when? In the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where's the promise of his coming? You guys keep talking about the rapture. We've been hearing about that ever since the Jesus movement. We've been hearing about that for 40 years, as though 40 years is forever. In the grand scheme of the whole of human history, I'd say 40 years is pretty recent to be hearing about the rapture of the church. Wouldn't you? That's not some expansive amount of time. For since the fathers fell asleep, they say all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. And Peter says, for this they willfully forget. That by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for what? Until when? The day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Are there rapture scoffers today? Yes, there are. So the Bible is accurate in that prediction as well. Next, Paul tells the church, let no one deceive you about this. And then he offers a progression of events that initiate the march toward the destruction of the man of sin by the brightness of Jesus' second coming. Now, here's our point of interest. Lawlessness is already abounding today. It's all around us. Amen? People want to be without any kind of moral restraint. They want to redefine marriage. They want to pick what gender they are. All these lawless things that are set by the laws of nature and the law of God already, biologically, physiologically, chemically. Listen, you are predetermined to be a boy or a girl the day you're born, and those are the only two groups that there are. Now, here's our point of interest. As we note that lawlessness is at work, and what is restraining the rise of the Antichrist and his kingdom 
is going to be taken out of the way, and only then can the Antichrist be revealed. So who is he that is taken out of the way? What is holding back? What is the restraining force of utter lawlessness in the world today? Now, if you remember that light is an idiom for truth, you will have your answer. Jesus said, you are the what? You are the only truth bearers in the world. And when that is removed, then the restraining force holding back the rise of the Antichrist to power, the Holy Spirit dwelling in the saints of the church, then the church must be taken out of the way for the Antichrist to rise to power. The Holy Spirit is in us. Amen? Amen. Does he ever leave us? So do we not then have to be supernaturally translated by a supernatural agent into the next life instantaneously to forever be with the Lord for the Antichrist to rise to power? I hope you know the answer. The answer is yes. Now, that leads to another question, and we're wrapping things up here. Can the true church be present on the earth and not be a restraining force to utter lawlessness? No, well, of course not. Not if Jesus said we're the light of the world. So what is the solution to our question and the prophetic dilemma? The rapture. Luke 21, 34 to 36 says, Take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing drunkenness and the cares of this life, and that day come on you, how? Unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the whole face of the earth, on the face of the whole earth. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to do what? Any other escapists? Amen. All these things that will come to pass and stand before the Son of Man. Now the word escape means to flee out of. And this is a time that Jesus described as one that no flesh would survive if he did not return to stop it. And then it would be a time of global judgment. So where do hundreds of millions of Christians flee to in order to escape his judgment from every corner of the earth? Where are they going to go? There's only one solution. They have to be translated instantaneously from this life to the next by a supernatural agent who does so and gives us incorruptible immortality in the moment in the twinkling of an eye. The rapture is the only answer that completes the narrative of eschatology concerning our getting to the next life. Well, what about mid-trib or pre-trib? These are bonus points. Meaning, we miss the wrath, but we're here for the first half of the tribulation. These positions conflict with the church, hindering the rise to power of the Antichrist because he rises to power under the four horsemen of the apocalypse or on the first half of the tribulation. The church has to be gone for the whole seven years. And after all, how many weeks of Daniel is yet to be completed? There was 69 completed. How many is left? 70 minus 69 is... One, there's one seven-year period concerning Daniel's people and the holy city that is yet to be fulfilled, and it is the tribulation period, the 70th week of Daniel. The Antichrist is given power to reign during the first 42 months of the tribulation. We know this from the four horsemen of the apocalypse. A rider who goes out on a white horse brings a pseudo-peace to the world. He has a bow but no arrows, meaning he conquers the world through diplomacy and his lying rhetoric. So back where we began. Does the Bible teach the rapture of the church? Absolutely. Old Testament precedents and typologies, New Testament clarity, prophetic necessity, 
all say yes. So the only question left to ask is, are you ready? Jesus is coming soon. Amen.